Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name's Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Tony Evans of the Evening Standard and Alison Rudd of the Times. There's a pattern here. Criticise the fans, denigrate your predecessors, name and shame the players. And of course, deflect any personal blame. You probably don't need 12 minutes to work out who I'm talking about. Jose Mourinho. Where's all this headed, Tony? Oh, it's having a disaster. It's uh, increasingly he's become the parody of himself, and uh, it looks like ultimately there'll be carnage at Manchester United. I mean, this is a man who spent a lot of money. He's supposed to have restyled the team in his own image. He's bought a lot of big players. You know, it's um, uh, there's, there's only Sanchez and Mkhitaryan that have arrived in his uh, tenure that have been under six foot, and Mkhitaryan's gone. And so, you know, he, he was building a team to bully Manchester City and to bully the Premier League, but it seems that the only thing he can do is bully his own players, his fans, and hide from the inevitable blame that will come his way. There's a predictability about this, isn't there, Ali? And it reminds me a little bit of the, the Bernie Eccleston principle of management, which is create a problem to solve the original problem. In other words, blow the whole lot up and then see where it takes you. Is that what's happening at United? Well, it's quite complicated. They're not abject failures at United. He, he's, you could say he's unlucky that he's arrived there at the same time as Pep Guardiola because they're on track to finish in the Champions League. They could finish second. They could win the FA Cup. They're embarrassing results against Seville. That it was embarrassing, and I think that's at the heart of, of what he's said most recently, is that it pains him that people complain not just about the outcome of that game but the style of it. I think, I think what he finds particularly galling is, is... I think he would accept if people said that was a disappointing result, Manchester United should get through. What he cannot accept is people questioning his methodology or his tactics for a game because he knows best. He is the great Mourinho. And most of the rants that we've, we've heard recently have been a sort of peculiar reminder. Don't you know who I am, effectively, is what he's saying. But I agree with Tony completely. It's almost like he's become a parody of himself. If I was Luke Shaw, I might want to sue him for bullying. I mean, it's appalling. It's not just once. It's through, through his Man United career, he's been picked on publicly by Mourinho as, as at fault for, the, for a, whole, a whole game full of mistakes. He's made it all about Luke Shaw. I, I, goodness knows how you recover from that if you're a young player who, who joined Man United hoping he would progress his career and learn and become the great player people said he could be. It's, and, it's really and not a, good. And there's a player who's been through the insecurity of a, of a serious career-threatening injury, come back from that. To take your point on a bit more, Ali, what, why does a manager go out to create a culture of fear and blame? That's always worked for Mourinho, hasn't it? There's a couple of things in his character. 
that leads him to do this. There's a certain amount of mischief. He likes to keep players on the toes. But he's also got an innate suspicion of flair players. He's the man who made Iron Robin run in a sandpit, didn't he, on his own? And, you know, and we all know now because we're told every time he's mentioned that he sold uh, Kevin De Bruyne and uh, Salah. Mo Salah. No, Salah. You know, so it's a, he, he, he doesn't like players like that. You know, it's a, But what gets me is... For all his complaints, he's got the midfield he wants. He's got Pogba, who's one of the most prized young players in the world. He's got Matic alongside him. And up front, he's got Lukaku. Just that sort of triumvirate should set it up to be a classic Mourinho team of knocking the ball diagonally long, holding it up, midfielders coming through, scoring. Yet United aren't functioning like that. It seems that he's lost the key to his own success. Mm. That 12-minute rant, where does that sort of rank in the great pantheon of, of managerial rants. You know, we, we're brought up on the Benitez facts rant, the Kevin Keegan, I'd love that. Where's all that rate? Well, rants, I think, have to be divided into genuine rants from the heart that haven't been scripted or planned. I like Keegan. And, and that's what Keegan's was. And I think he probably regretted letting people see how much he was hurting and bothered. And then the other extreme is Rafa, who had a piece of paper and it was very... I, mean, I think he probably rehearsed it in front of the mirror for more than 12 <laughs> minutes. But, but Mourinho's is, I think, somewhere between the two in that I think... He, and he, he, I used to see him a lot when he was at Chelsea. He used to get a lot of Chelsea presses. And I did often get the impression he wasn't really answering any questions. He'd come with an agenda and he'd want to set the agenda and he sort of planned, if not word for word, he'd planned where he wanted the press conference to go and the message he wanted the media to leave with. But in this instance... I, this is a hard thing to say, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure he's totally in control. I, don't, I didn't feel he was totally in control. I think he's been through a lot of stress. We're increasingly talking about the pressure that players are under and we should talk more about mental illness or, or stress or being in the spotlight and what that means, particularly for young players. But this is a man whose father died in the summer. Mm. And the fact that he mentioned his father in the rant, he said, I was nothing, <clears throat> I was just my father's son implies to me that this is a man who's struggling to be a man without a father anymore and trying to determine how great he is. Hmm. And to do that publicly is either very brave or, or a sign that someone is slightly losing grip of, of where they're going with their job and their role in that job. I think a less eloquent way of saying it is he's fallen out of love with the game. I mean, back when, when you used to see him a lot, when he was at Chelsea first time round, there was always a little bit of twinkle in his eye. There was an element of self-parody about him. He knew what he was doing. Now he just looks worn by the whole experience and he's not enjoying it. Mm. Oh, but... Do you not see my point? He might not be enjoying it because pri his, yeah, pri I'm his agreeing private with life is I'm agreeing with you completely. great and he's trying to find his well, role. Yeah, I'm agreeing. It's interesting, you know, and I don't want to make direct comparisons between you know, the Luke Shaw situation, but the broader issue that you touched upon there about mental health in football, there was a fantastic interview in De Spiegel with Per Mertesacker um, where it, it basically begins... My stomach starts churning and I feel like I'm going to throw up. Then I have to choke so hard that I tear up. Now, this is someone who's in mortal fear of playing football. He's done it for 15 years. I found that interview, and you know, I know you've read it as well, Ali, I found that really revealing about the inner struggle that there is in football. Is it a football struggle or is it just if you're in any 
any realm of life where you put yourself under pressure, mm. you have to learn how to cope with that. And he, he was coping at the extreme level. And the remarkable thing about Per is he is quite vivid about the vomiting and the going dashing to the toilet and not being able to eat. And I don't know how you play football if you don't eat. I mean, mm. it's phenomenal that his career was based on all the things that you would say should kill off a career. He managed to pull through it. And I, 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 I already admired him as a player. I admire him even more for having built such a, a, mm. a career and a reputation while he was struggling like that. But I am struggling to think of it as a football issue. Yeah, I mean, and it, it, I think it's a, 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 a across you know sort of life, and it's it's not new to football. I mean, Craig Johnston back in the eighties playing for Liverpool, you know, he, he basically had a nervous breakdown when he was playing. You know, he, he talks about it. Uh, he, he come home one night after a match and tore off his suit in anger and ended up sobbing naked in the hallway. You know, there was one Premier League striker who uh, he, he spoke to us when, when I was at the Times and he talked about being on a pre-season tour to Korea, South Korea, and wanted to throw himself out the window. He was that depressed. So it's not, not unusual. But the, the thing about Mourinho is that I suspect he'd be one of those people, and I can't be sure about us, who would have had less sympathy with that throughout his career and would have seen that as part of the mental weakness that would stop people becoming great players. Mm. Uh, I say, now I'm absolutely sure about it, but instinct tells me that uh, he, he might have had over too much sympathy. Yeah, but I, I do think that football produces emotionally stunted people because it's a, it's a game and a profession based upon fear and insecurity and, and dealing with that. Do you agree with that? Oh, that's quite... Fear and insecurity. Well, yeah, dressing rooms are really harsh places, and a player who basically expresses himself emotionally therefore makes himself vulnerable. Yeah, no, you're right, because I, I, I interviewed Ian Wright about bullying. He was at the face of an anti-bullying campaign, and he, he did give me some insight as to what it was like in a dressing room, and the thing that hurt him most was in, in an arena where the older players and the experienced players and maybe the players who have captaincy or vice-captaincy bestowed on them should be nurturing the young ones, they would often be insecure about a younger, faster, maybe more skillful player and just really belittle them rather than say, mm. we're all in a team together. And I sort of naively thought the team spirit would triumph over those petty insecurities and jealousies. But because it's a short, I think probably what it is, it's because it's such a short career. Once you hit 30, 31, you start worrying about when you're going to be booted out. Mm. And how do you cope with that? If you're not emotionally intelligent enough to cope with it, you might take it out on other players. And that does create a toxic environment, I agree. And the other thing is, for a long time, and I'm not entirely sure it's finished now, what we'd see as bullying was considered not only acceptable, but a good thing it was considered as leadership. Mm. You know, you, 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 you straighten them out by um, effectively bullying them. Mm. And there's also the entire fear. I mean, Jamie Carragher's talked about how he never got any satisfaction out of winning. It was just relief. You know, mm. he kept his place, he'd still be there. You know, we'd not let anyone down. It's, it's highly pressurised. Because you mentioned leadership there, and is that the heart of the Man United issue? Is Man United have had six captains this season, mm. and they still haven't found a natural leader. Does yeah. that sum up a big issue there? Yeah, I think so. I think um, there is no, there's no on-pitch presence who can direct things. Well, Mourinho takes all the leadership and all the responsibility onto himself in one way and then deflects it and blames the players when, when the time comes. And so it, does, it doesn't create a situation where you'd want to be a leader. Mm. 
are we best to actually wait for the next whinge, which will be, oh, well, we're playing Tottenham in the FA Cup semi-final at their home ground? Oh, well, he'll have fun with that, I think. That might lighten the mood slightly, because we've all... <laughs> We've all known that Tottenham had every chance of getting to the semis. It's bit, it's not, this isn't a new issue. It's been hanging over. If you lease out Wembley, what's going to happen? There's going to be a conflict of interest if the team that's living there temporarily gets there. I was at the Swansea Spurs game at the weekend, and Eric Dyer said it won't feel like a home advantage at all because it will feel different, that you'll have half the stadium, as opposed to it being a home ground, there'll even be half the stadium with Spurs fans in it. And... As it turns out, they're in the away dressing room. Oh. And you never know, and they'll take away all the branding that Spurs have put up. You never know. It might be that if you have become used to walking out at Wembley as your stadium and it does feel different, it might knock you mentally mm. slightly more than it would knock Man United being angry that it, Spurs are there every week. Oh, uh, Devil's be in, advocate. They'll be in the ratty little away dressing room because they have one of them at Wembley. Now, yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> what I love about this is the disingenuous thing, you know, Tottenham, Tottenham people and fans saying, oh, you know, it, we had the, it was the Wembley who's... Now it's an advantage. Well, this is how it works. When you're not used to playing at Wembley, and you're struggling to learn there, it is a bit of a hoodoo. And then when you're comfortable there, you do have home advantage. You can add both things at once. It's a massive home advantage. And I'm sure at this very moment, Mourinho is organising a petition to Parliament, uh, <laughs> a march down Whitehall, and probably um, he's, he's on the phone to uh, Putin and asking him to do something about it. <laughs> now, there's a thought. I'm going to change the subject on that. Um, Liverpool, your club, mm. Mo Salah. 36 goals, nine assists, quotes on the way to, unquote, being the next Lionel Messi. What about the last bit of that statement? Uh, well, I, th I think if we can, you know, we, we do overhype people, but, you know, it's uh, when you've been doing it, you know, a decade or more, and when you've got a, a clutchy European Cups, you know, with Champions Leagues, then, then, then you can get the comparison. But what well, I will say, I mean, you're beginning to think, uh, who was Fernando Torres? Or, um, you know, uh, <laughs> Suarez? <laughs> Yeah, he's been he's been absolutely outrageous. I mean, he's he's got better as the season went on. And normally, a player comes in and does well in the first half of the season. Everyone sees him second time round. They know what he does. They know his tricks, and they they, they counter him. Uh, it seems that no one is able to stop Salah, and he's just been absolutely outrageous. Uh, and I suppose the one in one way, the one disappointment is he's having the sort of season that should take a club to a, a, a league title or a, a big cup, still in the Champions League, you never know. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, Liverpool have a habit, and they've had, had, have a, had a habit in the past decades of wasting big years like that. And um, it would be nice to see him come up with some silverware at the end. I think the goal that actually proved more about him to me than anyone was actually not scored in England. It was the last-minute penalty that he scored to make sure that Egypt qualified for the, the World Cup, which is like, you know, an entire nation was with him when he was taking that kick, which must have fried his brain. Is that the essence of him, that he can almost, you know, go beyond the moment and think, right, I just do what I do, just play like I play? Well, that... I think you might put your finger on it, cos the remarkable thing about him is that he wasn't like that two years ago. No. And when he was at Chelsea, they could not get him out of the club quick enough. Mm. They would have picked him up from his house in a chauffeur-driven car to get him to the airport to get him out. They thought they'd made... I'm not exaggerating, this is true. Oh. They thought they'd made a, a ridiculous mistake with Mo Salah. 
even though, and I saw him with playing with Chelsea, he wasn't. They, they played. They wouldn't play him for a whole match, and mm. they played him out of position. He played ten games, and he had six different centre forwards alongside. He, exactly, him. it wasn't part of a system. He didn't look comfortable. You got the impression he'd been over talked to, given too many instructions, and not like Klopp has said, just enjoy yourself, basically. Mm. So he goes off to Roma, and any Roma fan will tell you. Wow, we love his pace. Mm. Amazing pace, but he can't really finish. He gets into, mm. gets into position, but mm. he doesn't have to disappoint when he gets there. And then he comes to Liverpool, and you think, well, I can see why Klopp wants his pace. Uh, pace is, is, is invaluable in the Premier League, absolutely invaluable. Will he score? And there were the sort of first five or six matches, you thought, oh, OK, OK, maybe he's, you know, maybe he's, he's enjoying his football so he can. He, he would miss a few. Mm. But we have watched somebody grow into elite stature in front of our very mm. eyes. That's the remarkable thing about him, his transformation from day one to now. Mm. He is getting better and better. Yeah. He's using his left foot and his right foot. He's jinking left, right, left, right, and then just doing another jink just, just to... And, you know, defenders are falling over. Mm. They don't know how to handle him. Mm. Incredible, incredible stratospheric projection of talent. To be fair to Chelsea and Mourinho, who just criticised over Salah, they, they only rarely bought him to keep him out of Liverpool's clutches. Liverpool were desperate to, to buy him, and um, Brendan Rodgers didn't particularly want him and spoke about it at a press conference, which alerted Chelsea, and Chelsea dived in. And, you know, Mourinho, who said he distrusts Flair and plays him out too wide out on the wing where... He can only go one way, which is easier to deal with. And they said he was a bit, a bit lightweight, couldn't take the physicality of the Premier League, and probably didn't have the mentality for it. He's grown, he's grown considerably, and um, and clearly the physicality doesn't worry him. And uh, his mentality, as you say, from the Egypt game, is um, brilliant. Mm. Did Jurgen Klopp have a point, Ali, when he spoke very harshly about the fixture scheduling? around the Champions League tie against Manchester City. You know, you've got those three really huge games essentially within a week with the, the derby match in between. Did he have a point? I'd have thought he'd be delighted it's derby weekend because it, City will be distracted by winning the title against United. Mm. So, in a way, it's, it only affects those two clubs because they're playing together. If, if it, they'd been drawn against someone else who, who didn't have a derby weekend or were playing in a league where they are nicer to their teams in the Champions League and do put a Friday night game on for them if they need and so on, then he would have a point. But it's, it's, it's the same pressure. It's more, there's more pressure on City during that derby weekend. Mm. Actually. So what on earth do you do? You've, you, your narrative at City is, we can win the title against United. Well, do you rest players and deny your fans that opportunity because you want to focus solely on getting through to the Champions League? That's the, mm. There's a bigger dilemma for City, yeah. I think. He's contractually obliged to moan, isn't he? <laughs> You know, you know, you've seen managers, Liverpool managers, down the years. Yeah. Got a new book out on Thursday, Two Tries, which is looking at the sort of social context mm. of Liverpool and Everton in the mid-80s, Thatcher and all that. Mm. In that context, where does Jurgen Klopp fit in culturally at Liverpool? I think he's a very good fit. Liverpool fans demand a messianic type of character, and he's got that. He's got them playing good football. He's uh, socially aware. And, and, and is um, more left-leaning than some other managers. Let's not mention Jose Mourinho again. <laughs> and I think he's, he's an excellent fit for Liverpool. I think he's been deified too early, you know, to, before he's actually achieved anything. But in the two and a half years he's been here, there's, there's 
been signs of progression almost all the way through. And they're, they're at the point where now, I think next season will be the big season for them where all this promise hopefully will be fulfilled. Mm. Are they capable of making a sustained challenge to Manchester City next season? Probably not without spending a bit more money and maybe a gear shift in attitude towards the defence. Klopp, I admire him enormously and I think he's a great, great fit for Liverpool. But the way he's stuck by the two, goal two goalkeepers, neither of whom are in the top 20 of goalkeepers I see on a regular basis. Well, to be fair, um, Karius has done Karius is improving and Klopp wants to stick with him and he bought him knowing he was good but could get much, much better. But you're not going to challenge City for the title while you're watching your goalkeeper grow into the role. Mm. I mean, Pep Guardiola just goes, right, not, that goalkeeper's not quite perfect for me, I will buy another one. And you've got to be a bit more ruthless in your... If, if that's... Unfortunately, that's the, that's the way next season's going to be. You're going to have to be as ruthless as... Guardiola to really challenge him, I think. I, I couldn't agree more. There's got to be more stability at the back. There is still a touch of the Brendan Rodgers-itis the, in the defence. And, I mean, part of the problem is I don't think um, Klopp had ever really thought about goalkeepers before. You know, he had goalkeepers and, and they, were, they were perfectly adequate. You didn't have to worry about them. He got to Anfield and, good Lord. Because mm, mm. they are, that's a team going to be defined by them by going forward. What about Firmino? Okay, he was the one who got the other goal against Watford. And it was lovely. It was. He strikes me as being very underrated. Well, he's not really, because I think Klopp, at any opportunity, if you try and talk to Klopp about any player who's had a great game, he'll go, yeah, yeah, but actually Firmino was very important in, in allowing that player to be good, because Firmino does work incredibly hard. He buzzes and he buzzes and he closes down. And when he gets the ball, he is still able to do something beautiful with it. And those those are very rare players to have that energy level, reading of the game, selflessness, and you can still flick the ball with your heel into the back of the net if the moment arises. So he he's really important. He's very much in that tradition of you know going back to rush. You know people talk about the press as if it's new. You know rush was the first line of defence. He'd be closing men down and, uh, and Firmino does the same thing. And he just cuts the options for opposition ball carriers. Mm. And then when Liverpool do have the ball, his use of space is so clever. Mm. Do players like that seize the imagination, particularly at Liverpool, because of the nature of the club? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there is you know the the tradition of great attacking footballers and um you know you want to see and clever footballers you know going back to you know sort of even before Dalglish, you know way back you know sort of in the traditions to Billy Little and all that so so people love to see him do that and and I mean I'm not so sure about the the no look goals I mean, if I was a centre-half, I'd be thinking to myself, I'm going to have a no-look tackle on you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but not a no-consequence tackle, I'm sure. Exactly. Um, you know, when you, you know, we, we live in an age of hype. Now, I suppose we better put it to bed about Messi. Messi is still out there. It's interesting, actually, when we talked about earlier about players you know, going through difficult phases within their career. It's a really interesting translated interview I, I, I read this morning from Argentina where... Messi has talked about when he was like 21, 22, vomiting a lot in the way that Mertesacker was. You know, even going back to when he was like 11 and 12 and, and injecting himself. When you look at Messi, we all know how good he is, but we don't really know him as a person, do we? That's quite interesting how he's managed to keep that 
tight. Yeah, that is interesting. But he's, I think he's an ex... I think Messi, a lot of the success of Messi is an expression of Barcelona, because Barcelona looked after him and they paid for the treatment he needed in order to overcome his growth stuntedness. They saw talent in him and were prepared to say, we'll cover all costs, we'll look after you. They became his family. And there's something about the way Barcelona does that, whether you're six years old or 26, you will play the same type of football and they want you to come through the ranks, something no English club really has ever been able to replicate. So it is, it is a family and you are allowed to express yourself. And if he was going to suffer those sort of nerves, I think he probably, the only place he would have succeeded would have been Barcelona because he was with family. And there's something about the way Messi is full of self-expression and plays alongside players who are happy for him to have that limelight because they are part of the family. We were talking earlier about how tough it is in the dressing room and jealousies within clubs. At Barcelona, you do genuinely get the feeling there's a bigger picture in, the, in their hearts at all time. And I think that has allowed Messi to blossom to become the icon he is, really. I mean, as, yeah, and I think as much as he's protected by the people around him, he's very generous to them as well. And with Argentina, when Argentina pay friendlies and there's, um, you know, they get an extra bonus if Messi plays. Well, Messi shares it around everyone. Everyone gets the same proportion from the kit man to, to Messi himself. So there's that. He's, he's very much in tune with everyone around him. There's no, I mean, you know, so see, you look at the difference between Cristiano Ronaldo and Messi, and Cristiano probably is a little bit, how should we put it, more self-centred. Yeah, but he's got a lot to be self-centred about, hasn't he? You know, Quite right. He's scored 17 goals in the last eight games. Hmm? He can do what he wants. You know, he's, <laughs> he, 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 he does, he, he does bear comparison with Messi for the best player in the world. Mm. If we're looking here, player of the year, there is, I get this sense that there's a momentum building behind Salah. Do you have to be the best, to, to get that award, do you have to be in the best team? So in other words, do you really need to go for Kevin De Bruyne or Salah? Well, there's no rule when you're voting, no. uh, whether you're voting for the players' player or whether it's the football writers' voting. There's no rule saying you have to vote for a player. I voted for playing. Tony Craig of Millwall one year. <laughs> <laughs> I voted for Gilfie Sigurdsson last year. I was the only one to do so. <laughs> but it, there is no rule. Is it? And the, but there are a list of criteria you're supposed to look at, and one of them is uh, do they... Do they conduct themselves mm. well? Do they, are they a good advert for football? You don't really want the vote going to someone who's dirty whilst also effective, for example, or is always in controversial press conferences or something. Um, you want I an ambassador... An ambassador <laughs> for the game, an ambassador for the game. It's up to the individual. I think it's entirely up to the individual whether you feel... I, I don't feel comfortable voting for someone unless they're in a winning team. I want to vote for someone in a winning team and I want to vote for the person who I feel has really helped that team to be the winning team it is, or whether someone just takes your breath away and you feel you can't deny them the vote because of the way they've made you feel more than anything. And that's what it's going to come down to. That's what it's going to come down to. And also, there'll be a split vote perhaps with City because although Kevin De Bruyne is the most beautiful passer of the ball and a really elegant player, there are other stars in that City mm. team. And you could make a case he's not even the best City player, actually, at this very moment in time. Sane. Ex I mean, pace, again, really important. So... Silver. If you're, yeah. if you're, if you're in, based in the north, west, and you're picking your player, you, you, it's, it's mm. going to be... I think the City vote might get split and I think Salah might emerge through because he's, 
he just he makes you gasp. <gasps> wow, what did he just do? Yeah, yeah. And still on the hype theme, what do you think about Pochettino speaking about Deli Alley? as the best 21-year-old player in the world? Well, it's a pretty narrow band, so he's, <laughs> he's, he's got a fair chance of being there or thereabouts, you know. It's a, I, I think Deli Ali has had a year where he hasn't quite grown as much as some of us anticipated. He's had a more difficult year. Um, you know, he, he hasn't quite fired on all cylinders. He's played him in a slightly different position. And I'm not sure whether either Pochettino or Deli Ali knows where he's best. You know, as a, a sort of a pseudo second striker or a, a proper midfielder, thruster midfielder. I suspect he'd be better being a thruster midfielder. I think he's still got an enormous amount of uh, ability. And the question is, can he step it up to the next level? I mean, you don't want to be called the best 21-year-old in the world. What you want to be is one of the dominant players. And he's not quite there yet. Mm. It's a prime example of Poch Pochettino is paternalistic. And we all love him for it and the way he gives youth a chance. And he, he's just, he just knows that there's a, every chance that Deli Alli could just, just swerve out of the picture if he doesn't get himself, his head right and everything, and apply himself properly. So he's just making sure everyone, reminding everyone that he is young and he's in good hands is what he's doing. Mm. And, you know, given the context of, you know, the speculation that, you know, could he be the one who replaces Modric at Real Madrid? When he goes to Real Madrid, which I think he possibly will do eventually, he will need good people around him to make sure that that doesn't overwhelm him, won't it? Well, well in, yeah, of course, he, of course he will. But in a sense, Poch, by saying what he said, Pochettino's almost saying he can't go anywhere else. Not yet, not for a while. He mm. needs to be with me. Because every bit of controversy that Ali's been involved with, most of it about diving lately, he has defended him and defended him. He's young, he's learning, I have absolute faith in his moral judgment. Mm. How many managers would follow that path? Some might get exasperated. Mm. He's lucky at the international level having someone like Gareth Southgate who is, whether you like his selection policy or not, mm. you know, no one can doubt that he's a very emotionally intelligent manager. Mm. What do you make of the squad that he's selected for these two games against Italy and, uh, and Holland? It's more or less what you thought he'd do at this stage. I mean, this is the last chance to take a look at the people who are on the fringes uh, when the next set of internationals come round after the season. I think you've got to have a much clearer idea of, of you know, sort of, of how you want the team to play. So he's, he's take a chance at look at people. And, yeah, it's, it's a bit, it's a bit ho-hum because we know it's the phony war before the, the real action starts and we get geared up for the World Cup. But I think it's a fairly, as always with Southgate, a sensible squad. And hopefully he'll take, be able to take a look at players, as I say, who are on the fringe, and also experiment a little bit with the systems, the two systems, the three at the back, the four at the back, perhaps during games switch, drop and dire in, and see how that works. So, I mean, it looks eminently sensible. Do you expect you know, the new call-ups, Tarkovsky and Mawson and, and Lewis Cook, who, you know, I know Gareth has been speaking about privately for six months, do you expect them to play? In the friendlies? Yeah. Yes. Yes, I do. I don't... Well, I might, I might look stupid, but I don't think Southgate sees any advantage to bringing mm. young players into squad just for the experience, just so they're allowed to hobnob with the likes of yeah. Deli Alley or whatever. I mean, that's just stupid. We're beyond that, I think. Mm. There's no point, there's just zero point. In, they don't need that. I mean, caps have become like confetti anyway. There's no, it's no big deal getting a cap. I mean, 
it is a big deal, but it's not mm. like it's not like it was because we now he has mm. experimented so much. You, you, it's easier to count the people who haven't been called up than who have, who are any mm. good. So I think he has to give them time on the pitch. I think his um, the previous way he's done this, he does give them time on the pitch, and I think he'll be absolutely delighted that having had the call up, Mo um, Alfie Mawson was up because I was there uh, against Spurs. Swansea clearly got their eye on staying out of trouble. They had um, several players missing through ineligibility and injury. They didn't really give it a go. But Mawson, you could tell he was proud to have been picked. And mm. he, he played as good, if not better, than he's played all season. And if you're the England manager, that's exactly the response you want to. So having said, I think he might be a good enough on-the-ball defender for me. And having seen him, I'd say, yeah, come straight in. Let's see how you, let's yeah. see how you do. Mm, mm. Definitely. Are we seeing a bit of the, the Sean Dyche effect here? Because you've got Tarkovsky coming to the squad. Nick Pope has come out of nowhere as a terrific goalkeeper, got him through injury to Tom Heaton, that these are the sort of players who, if they're coached well at club level, have got a chance now at international level. Oh, without a doubt. He's, he's done brilliantly, hasn't he, Daish? And it's just almost a conveyor belt, you know, especially in defence, because the thing is, you get clubs like Liverpool where they can't find defenders. Yet it should be the easiest and least expensive position to fill. You know, it's a, it's, it's not like finding a 20-goal-a-year striker. You know, you can find defenders, not everywhere, but a lot of players. And Turkowski in particular this year, he's just stepped into the breach and he's been brilliant. Mm. What about the goalkeepers, Ali? I can't really work out the advantage of having Joe Hart in the squad. He seems a bit shot to bits at the moment. Who would you pick? Uh, to me, it seems really clear it's Pope. His, his um, statistics are stratospherically better than anyone else in the squad. He's got an 82% success rate, something like that, and then it's 60, then 50. I mean, he's the best shot stopper there is. And if he hadn't been Burnley's number two, he'd have been in the frame a lot earlier. I think he's been... There's been a disservice to the way he's been viewed because he was number two to Tom Heaton, who was considered a possible England number one. And for too long, people thought, oh, yeah, Pope, well, he's a number two. But actually, how else do you judge a goalkeeper mm. if not on the fact that he's more successful than everybody else? I, th I think you'd have to judge him by putting him in for an international and see how he copes with the, the, the whole... The, the added pressure that comes with it. Mm. And I think, uh, you know, one of the things that England players always talk about, they talk about, you know, the weight of the share, which... You know, it seems a bit surreal in many ways, but it does have an effect on you, and, you know, with the World Cup coming. I think it's going to be a difficult conundrum for Southgate. Uh, and Joe Hart, uh, I don't think he should be in the, you know, sort of in, in the frame at this stage. Mm. We talk about the weight of the shirt and the responsibility of international football. You've just been to Iceland, mm. Ali, spent four days there looking at that system. What were the, the lessons and the impressions that you brought back with you? Well... The lesson is there are no lessons you can draw because Iceland is so specifically different to every other... They're the smallest nation to ever qualify for a World Cup by some distance. They are sh their population is smaller than the size of Croydon. So you can't, you can't look at Iceland and think, oh, we'll copy some of what they do, because you cannot, because what they do is all about exploiting their size. So rather than thinking, we're too small to succeed, they take their size and they make that their advantage. So there is no talent goes overlooked in Iceland. Anyone who wants to play football can play football. Even if you're absolutely rubbish and even if you're quite old, you can play football. And every single coach that will coach you will be a qualified UEFA B or A coach. It is concentrated, perfect system, but it only works in a very small society. And then you've got the 
the sort of flip pressures that you get in England. I spoke to the Icelandic president, and he spent a lot of time in England because he's a historian and an academic, so he's worked at universities in England, and he said there's such a distance between the players who play for England and the fans. They're superstars, and if it doesn't go well, they start saying, oh, they're not playing for the shirt and they get too much money, and we don't know who they really are. They look spoiled and ignorant to us. In Iceland, you actually do know the players. I mean, literally know them. They're either a cousin or you worked with their dad in, you know, in the garage or you've met them at a party. You do... Every fan knows at least one player. Mm. It's, it, and so when the players play with that pressure, it's completely different, but it's still a pressure. And if you get that to work, boy, are you going to succeed beyond what your resources say you should. And that is the secret to their success. Mm. Big week, isn't it? You know, BT Sport... A, a... There were a couple of games, uh, Germany playing Spain and then Brazil. Are we beginning to get a sense of runners and riders for Russia? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think we, we've got it over the last couple of years and we're seeing them develop. Germany and Spain are obviously going to be there and thereabouts. I mean, I think Germany, uh, ideally placed, I think um, they've got... Um, a very good squad, loads of talent, young players coming through. I mean, obviously Brazil are going to be a power, but it's hard to win a tournament on European soil, almost European soil, some of it. <laughs> um, that's a game I'm looking forward to. Mm. Right, with some questions from the, the listeners and the viewers. Uh, Richard Hood, uh, it's our Arsenal question of the week. <laughs> Do you feel Arsene's opposition to a sporting director and the club's very public efforts to secure one, with names like Overmars, St Haley, Zork attached to the role, may have affected Wenger's drive and sense of value to the club. Uh, from the point, does he mean from the point of view of the Arsenal board? They are now, yeah, they he's, are now he's, thinking yeah. he's less important. I think what he's saying is, how will the role of a sporting director impact at Arsenal? It won't have any impact at all while Wenger's there. Wenger doesn't listen to anybody. Mm. Wenger doesn't want them to be a sporting director, so if they appoint one, fine, he won't talk to him or her. That's fine, they're thinking beyond. They're, any talk of sporting director is about post-Wenger. They don't expect it to work seamlessly while Wenger's there. He, Wenger doesn't listen, I'm told, doesn't listen that closely to what the medics say. He makes his... He's, in control, it's his club. He does what he wants to do. He's having none of it, you know. The, um, he's, he's had a number of nibbles at the new chief scouts from Dortmund, and um, it's it's Wenger world. Mm. Michael Brockman asks, just how important is Wilfred Sahar to Crystal Palace? Very, very. He's got pace. He stretches defenders. He runs at people, and he he can score goals and supply goals, and goals will what's is what will save teams in, in the bottom part of the division. And I, I think Palace will stay up. Saha is the most important. Ben Teke has been a very big disappointment, I think, to everyone mm. for a long time. Uh, but, you know, it's, uh, would Saha be alongside him, I think, uh, make a huge difference? Yeah, I can remember you sitting on that, that sofa saying a long time ago, very early on, that Roy Hodgson would save Crystal Palace. Have you still got the faith? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yes, and I don't even really get why people were saying they were back in trouble just because they didn't get points off the big clubs they, were, they had a spade to play. Why would you expect Crystal Palace to they nearly beat Chelsea, but they didn't? I mean, they're not going to stay up because they can beat Chelsea. They're going to stay up because when they go to Huddersfield and the game is treated as a six-pointer, they're the ones who mm. hold it together. And Zaha, on the face of it, you'd say he had a quiet game, but he did not. He got a high mark from our reporter who was there 
because he he just made Huddersfield panic. Oh yeah, he, he runs at them and he makes people. He worries defenders. He, yeah. he shifts them out of position, and you know me and Roy are never going to be a drinking buddies, but he's very good at what he does. Yeah. Final question from Craig Harrison. Now, this is a bit of a uh, a local question, but I'll, I'll allow it because it addresses a broader issue. Who is doing a better job this season considering their resources? Pep Guardiola or Neil Harris? <laughs> it's a difficult one. Well, let's swap positions and let's put, uh, let's put Neil in at uh, the Etihad and let's send Pep to the den. Um, could either of them do the other's job? Um, that, that's a, that'd be an interesting question. I'd love to see that. I'd love to see a job swap. Well, sort of trading you know, places. Yeah, yeah. yeah for, you know, for, for, you know, even half a season would be brilliant. Yeah, but uh, who'd accept the challenge? Neil Harris would accept it, but Pep wouldn't. No, he wouldn't, would he? Can, can I just be a fence-sitter on this and saying they're both doing brilliant jobs, they really are, and, and clearly, given where he's got to work with, I think um, I have uh, more admiration probably for Neil. Good stuff. And I suppose the, the issue really is, you know, is budget. You know, he's actually, Neil Harris has performed wonders with a minimal budget. When we've got Jose Mourinho saying, well, I know I've spent 300 million, but I need another 300 million, please. Do we lose the art of management because money's taken over? Well, recent results have shown that you have to be able to, I mean, you can have Paul Pogba mm -hmm. in your team and it can go horribly wrong. And there's been far too much focus. If, you're, if, you, if you love Manchester United, there's been far too much focus on Paul Pogba because of his price tag, because of the emojis, because of the, the image. And he's, it's clearly got to him in some way because he's not performing week in, week out the way, half as well as he should be, really. And all the focus is on that because it's about how do you manage superstars? You, you need to be a special kind of manager to cope with a big budget, actually, it doesn't. It doesn't take away you, the art of management at all. There's just a different art to it. In some ways, it makes it more difficult because you got to deal with the egos. And the, the the art of management is taking eleven individuals and making them play for each other more than play for themselves. And Guardiola's doing that at Man City, and Mourinho isn't doing that at Old Trafford. Mm. What about Mark Hughes? Is Sparky going to come to the rescue at Southampton? I don't think so. Uh, they've had the look of a team there going down to me for a long while. Um, and it seems to me that Hughes, throughout his career, has taken clubs to just about where they should be. And I suspect Southampton should be in the Championship. <laughs> um, they've got Chelsea in the FA Cup semi-finals. What do you make of the current sort of psychodramas at Chelsea? Well, I mean... There's not even a drama now, because everyone knows Conte's going to go. Um, it's really peculiar that he's holding the team together enough to get to the semi-final of the FA Cup, and he's giving it his all to make sure they get in the top four, which is by no means an easy task. Really, if you were to sort of analyse what's gone on, they should be dropping like a stone, Chelsea. Oh. But, but they're not, because the fans love him and he has pride in his job. He has some great players, and they're might just do enough to get to the final, I think. And, you know, you know what, what, what's staggering, it, it just it, it boggles my mind, is that Chelsea bought Eden Hazard when they were European champions. They just won the Champions League in 2012. Since then, he's played for five managers, and if he stays next season, he'll have played for six. And surely, you know, it, that's no way to run a club. 
you know, because one of the best players in Europe, one of the mo most brilliant young talents, he's worked under so many different managers who wanted to use him differently. Some of them didn't fancy him particularly. It's um, and 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 there he is. And you wonder why Chelsea are in a state. And that's why but they're not really in a state, are they? They keep winning trophies. This is mm. a very. It's not a likable model, but I'd say it's a very successful model that, to never let the manager feel he's too important. That's that's what they'll argue. But then there's the counter argument. What if they were to go a good manager in, stuck with them? Would they have won more trophies? Mm. Okay. Final question for both of you. Um, simple one, really. Who is going to win the FA Cup? Chelsea, they're going to be Tottenham in the final. Oh, it'll probably be United, won't it? No. Probably, probably. Mm. I think Tottenham to beat United and win the Cup. Then watch the fun really start. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. <laughs>